This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Coming up, what does the Prime Minister do all day? I've been looking into it and how it compares to his predecessors, including the revelation that he quite likes a power nap. That's coming up. But first, it's Tuesday, so our columnist panel is, of course, Finkelvich. It's Danny Finkelstein and David Aronovich. you want to confess to falling asleep anywhere you shouldn't have done actually no um but i do i do um i do know when i used to work with david owen that he fell asleep live on television during an interview when jeffrey howe was talking <laughs> and and <laughs> Jonathan dimulby then came back to him and said well what do you make of that david owen and all he could do was to say um well, uh, I, I can't, that's not really the right question. <laughs> he, said, he said the worst bit about it was nobody noticed. Not a single person mentioned it. That is excellent. Uh, can you top that, David? Obviously, David, you've never fallen asleep in, in a meeting at the Times or anything. Uh, right, let's come no, on. No, I, ne- I, I never have. I mean... It's fine. There's, there seems to be a phenomenal delay between uh, uh, David and I, but that's fine. We can, we'll plough on. We'll plough on. Uh, let's talk about class. There's this um, uh, lots of research out. This I think it's from the LSE uh, looking at how uh, class and how people judge themselves. Uh, according to the British Social Attitude Survey, 47% of Britons in middle class professional and managerial jobs still identify as being working class. Uh, inevitably, uh, on social media, this sparked a lot of journalists in particular saying, oh, yeah, well, I grew up down <coughs> to pits and all of that. Um, class, are we still a nation obsessed by class, Danny? Well, yeah, it's actually something that's quite alien to me. When David Cameron was um, 
running for office in 2010, a lot of it was about would working class people vote Conservative for the first time? And we've seen that that's now happened, but it was already beginning to become a debate in 2010. And I said, the problem with that is I, it's very difficult for me to relate to, simply because I belong to an immigrant family. We come from outside the British class system. I, I now realise as I read more about my grandparents and my parents that class was a very important part of you know, of what, of the sort of Stalin and Hitler projects. And uh, therefore, um, they very much did have a social class in their own place. But uh, but in the British class system, you know, Jews don't quite fit in the same way. So it's always been slightly outside me. And it's not a, it, a lot of people I know are completely obsessed with the idea. And, and it was very important in the people's attitude, to David Cameron, it's important in their attitude to Boris Johnson. And it kind of passes me by. What about you, David? Class um, warrior yeah. David Ivanovich. I, I, <laughs> I found this very interesting. I mean, not least because the, uh, one of the articles that Danny shared with me in The Guardian by a chap called Sam Friedman at LSE, and it's his new study which uh, was looking at this, is so cross about it. Um, it's, it's really kind of interesting. What it essentially it says is there's all these middle class people, like young actors, going around saying, I'm from the working class, when actually they went to private school and so on. And it's long been a big joke, which, uh, which people will recognise, this kind of notion. It was the kind of, what is it called? The four Yorkshiremen for Monty Python or whatever it is, where they compete with each other to say how downtrodden their background was and how awful it was. Because the one thing that you must ward off in Britain is envy. This is the thing that is really important. The most terrible thing is that people should envy you. So what you must say to people is, I'm downtrodden, I'm having a terrible time, it's all awful, I mustn't say it's good, etc., in case I kind of invoke this. So as a part of it, there's a kind of psychological inverted snobbery there with the notion that either you're born into the purple of the aristocracy, uh, on the one hand, or, or else you are, your, your great-grandmother was a down-and-out prostitute in the kind of East End of London or something like that. But anything, <laughs> but anything in between is somehow discreditable uh, because it suggests you didn't really kind of have to work for what, to, for what you've got. And there is, you, you find inverted snobbery all the time. Whenever anybody is having a go at me, there's one uh, uh, chap at the moment who's having a kind of big fight with me um, and, and he always calls me a snob and that I, have a, I live in Hampstead and this is despite the fact that his Wikipedia shows he was born in Hampstead. And it's a kind of... <laughs> it, 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 it's really kind of peculiar. And the only thing... And, and the way I can get back at him really easily is to suggest to him for a moment that his parents were incredibly well, well healed, which actually they probably weren't. But he's very sensitive about it. Yeah, I mean the interesting thing, but you know, my my father when he was a uh, when he was young, um, when they came to this country, they were on welfare benefits. Uh, but when they were younger than that, they were unbelievably wealthy, <laughs> uh, as it turns out. Where does where does their social class um, go then? So it 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 is about. I think it is about proving merit. David's correct, right? It is. You know, I made this of myself I did it you know I was responsible for my own uh, abilities no one ever for example um bears in mind that they may have been gifted certain great skills right which mm. are which are possibly partially environmental but partially genetic you know yeah. uh, and that's also part of your inheritance but people just want to claim that what they did they did for themselves and they don't want anyone to imply that I that wasn't true I think that's so true. And uh, my, my dad left school at 15 and so on uh, because he was from a very poor Jewish immigrant family in the East End, etc. Uh, and I grew up in this kind of very political background. Both parent, grandparents had actually left school by the time they were 17. Was this 
what kind of background was this? Well, I'll tell you, it was a background full of books, full of discussion uh, and full of the other things which you would normally kind of suggest existed within a middle class background. It was a bit, as Danny suggests, kind of de classe uh, uh, in, in, that, in that sense. Um, I would never be able to claim to myself, however, the kind of notion of being working class in origin, because in every kind of cultural way, that would not be what people would understand my background to be. Yes, yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I mean, I'm sort of similar. My dad's a plumber. Uh, I wouldn't say that quite a lot of the time there was loads of money sloshing around when I was growing up, but equally, I wouldn't claim that. Uh, sitting on the radio, twaddling on about what's going on in the news, well, you know, is the equivalent to being, uh, you know, a, a tin miner or something, um, and claim <laughs> any working class. It's, it's also, it's also the way that you. Know, I think parents is what you know, your own experience is one thing. Then we, it's sort of my, well, my dad didn't go to university. Once you sort of, I think once you're dipping into grandparents to claim your working class credentials, you know, you you may have uh, you may have wrung that out. But one of the things that I think really striking is the way that a lot of this debate, Danny, you were talking about, you know, conservatives winning over working class voters in political uh, debates especially working class and northern tend to go sort of hand in hand that sort of yeah. london is the poshos and uh northern and working class because everyone you know works down a mine has got a flat cap and that sort of thing um, and la those lazy as if there's no middle class people uh, in the north and there are no working class people in, in the south well, and, and it was very interesting. I was reading a paper the other day about how this kind of regional disparity has probably persisted for for, for five hundred years. Uh, it's a per, you know it's going to be extremely difficult to to uh, to make a change to. So yeah, the people are saying a lot of cultural things about their uh, their own background, um, but mostly it's mostly it's a sort of claim for merit. By the way, the other thing it shows is how much politics is identity politics, even before what people now claim is identity politics. Yeah. It's just that we've shifted identities that we're interested in um, and people are, are, are claiming to be different things um, and um, in order to, to, to sort of gain advantage that they may have lost by being wealthy. Matt, can I just add one thing to this question of North, South and so on? And that is, my father, despite his background, never thought he was properly working class because the Marxist notion of what working class was was the industrial proletariat. When we talk about the North-South divide, what we're really talking about, actually, is the industrial proletariat. That's, that's essentially what we're talking about, insofar as it still exists and its identification with some regions of the country more than other regions of the country. And when we're talking about loss of that kind of, of identity, that is essentially the loss that we are talking about. We're not really talking about whether people are wealthy or not or educated enough. We're talking about whether or not they held those kinds of hev heavy industrial jobs which Marxists in the past that they kind of thought was absolutely wonderful because they would be the vanguard of the working class and lead us to revolution, which, as we know, didn't quite come off. <laughs> it didn't quite uh, didn't quite pan out. Uh, let's talk about now the, the value of a life. There's this story about uh, Lord Sumption, the former Supreme Court ju justice, who told a woman with stage four cancer her life was less valuable during a discussion about coronavirus restrictions. And obviously... Oh, it's an incredibly sensitive issue, but it, it does open up this question. And, you know, there's been lots of debate about doctors where hospitals are overwhelmed, doctors having to make a decision about who they treat and who they don't. <coughs> but actually, this judgment of the value of individual lives is a live debate and issue, isn't it, Danny? Yeah, of course, uh, Lord Sumption made a classic um, mistake of confusing price and value, right? <laughs> um, the, yeah. the, 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 uh, I, I don't think 
there are very many people who would use the language that he used about value, uh, particularly to an individual, and certainly I would never do so. Um, he was making a worthwhile point at the same time about price, right? Which is that if you're trying to make economic decisions and you're trying to rational, you're trying to rationally deal with limited resources, you have to make some sort of decisions <coughs> about pricing, right? And so, therefore, you you have to make some decisions about, uh, for example, you know, for example, our hospital services are quite possibly going to be overwhelmed. It's completely unfair to leave medics alone to make these kind of horrendous moral judgments and possibly expose themselves to legal action by people who feel they've made those judgments incorrectly. So some sort of social debate about uh, what our priorities are in those circumstances, awkward and horrendous though it is, is something we have to do. What the first thing we have to do uh, is everything we possibly can to avoid that becoming the question. But if it becomes a question, we have to try to uh, sort it, sort it. But to use the language of value, I think, was a really, um, a really cataclysmic error and a setback, a necessary debate. Actually, uh, there are all sorts of discussions we do have to have about um, what priority you put. Look. You know, for example, we have to make a decision about um, the the uh, the impact of lockdowns versus the impact of the coronavirus, and you can't do that without making some sort of um, judgments about uh, who it impacts upon and what you think about the life years that 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 you'll lose in one circumstance or another. You do have to do that. Um, and it set back that debate terribly for him to have referred to it as a question of value, particularly to a sick individual. Um, so it's a great shame because he's a man I, I don't agree with him about lockdown at all, but I do have a lot of respect for him. I've gained a lot from reading and listening to him, but I think this was a horrendous error, actually. What about you, David? Uh, I think what he was trying to refer to, as Danny is suggesting, is the notion that actually in the health service and elsewhere, they do look at something called quality adjusted life year when they look at trying to look at priorities for treatment. In other words, who is going to get the maximum? It's essentially a kind of Benthamite notion. Who's going to get the maximum benefit out of, uh, out of a particular treatment? If somebody's going to get 10 years of life, if you have one treatment available, somebody's going to get 10 years of good life out of it, and somebody else is going to get two years of tricky life out of it, then that's the tough decision that you're going to have to take, and you take that in, in all kinds of ways. It has absolutely nothing to do with the value of the person's life. It really doesn't. The person who you are deciding not to give the treatment to, their life is every bit as valuable as the person uh, you're going to give it to. Uh, it's just that you have to make a choice, and that's the basis on which you are going to make it. And uh, as Danny says, um, you want to try and avoid having to make that decision with every kind of fibre of your being insofar as you, insofar as you possibly can, or make it as fair as possible, or make it as clear as possible. That's the basis on what you're doing it. To say to one, your life is less valuable. I mean, I can't... He, I, I don't know what he thought of himself as those words kind of tumbled out of his mouth. I do well, know that he later said he was taken out of context. <laughs> He's not a politician, and that's very interesting. So one of the things that we have, right, is a lot of... Um, <coughs> of, 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 of Dis, you know, dismay about politicians and their imprecision and fudging language and, um, you know, spin and those kind of things. But actually, uh, you can look at those things as being like tact and sensitiveness and sensitivity to other people's circumstances um, as being part of what politics is about. And people make political failings when they fail to do that. Jonathan Sumption is a brilliant intellect. He thinks in very precise terms. I gain a lot by reading. I don't always agree with him. Uh, but um, this is an illustration of why he actually lacks a skill that, interestingly enough, he does himself in his intellectual work distinguish from that 
of politics, which is he has a legal skill and it's very different from political skill. And a political skill would know um, that, that, that people don't think of value in those terms and it was an inappropriate term to, to use. So interestingly, in some ways, sort of vindicating another part of his, of his oeuvre. I'd say he's an incredibly brilliant man, Sumption, and actually having read two of the volumes of his interminable history of the Hundred Years' War, which is the only thing that's actually taken about Hundred Years' War that's probably taken longer than the war itself to write, and it's really good. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 don't get me wrong, it's, it's really incredible that he's been able to do it, but he, God, he is arrogant. Like, you know, let's, you know, I mean, a lot of top lawyers really are. They're very brilliant people. And God, they know they're brilliant and, uh, and more brilliant than anybody else. And there is an well, element of you, that about it. You are obviously both brilliant people, too. Uh, without without the arrogance, without the arrogance, I, I, um, I hate to try. <laughs> Danny, your column in the, in the Times tomorrow. Do you know yet what you're writing on? Yeah, it's a, it's a sort of who is Joe Biden. Nobody's read... A, that many books about Joe Biden without being allowed to write a column about it is my theory. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah. <laughs> so Wednesdays, Wednesdays. You, so I've been. I'll, I'll hopefully share with uh, Times readers the fruit of a lot of research into Joe Biden. What sort of character he is? He's a slightly different person to what you think of him, and it'll be about the the, the generational politics of Joe Biden. Danny Finkelstein and David Ivanovich there. And you can read them both in The Times. You just need to get yourself a Times subscription. Go online, click on any store you like and sign up. And as a bonus, right now, you get your first month free. Coming up next, the Prime Minister's Day. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, a few days ago, uh, we were chatting in our team about things we might do on the show. And a colleague of mine asked, what does the Prime Minister do all day? What does his day look like? So that's what I set about set about trying to find out. And uh, this is the result. Um, gets up early. But, as you may have already read uh, in the papers today, he also likes a nap. Uh, I've also spoken to other people who work for former Prime Ministers uh, about uh, how they structured um, their lives and their diaries. So sit back, relax. This is the Prime Minister's Day. Wakey, wakey, rise and shine. Morning has broken. 
Being Prime Minister is not conducive with lions, especially as pre-dawn is about the only chance you have to exercise and just spend some time on your own. Boris Johnson, I'm told, is up at around six o'clock, climbing into whatever random running gear he can lay his hands on before being driven to Buckingham Palace, where he can huff and puff around the vast grounds without the risk of being packed by photographers. I start the day by going for a, a, a run with the, with the dog and uh, quite a gentle run, but actually getting faster and faster now as I, as, I get, as I get fitter. And the great thing about going for a run at the beginning of the day is that nothing could be worse for the rest of the day. Once if you really go in hard, if you really take some exercise at the beginning, the rest of the day will be a breeze. Keep on running. His predecessors have had a similar pattern. Kate Garvey was Tony Blair's diary secretary from 1997 to 2001. It was a sort of early start, 6.30, 6.30, and exercise did play a part. That was the easiest time to do it, but it took place in the, in the flat, in the number 11 flat. Um, eventually a gym was, uh, or at least a treadmill was installed there, so that was all possible to do upstairs before he came down. Gordon Brown would be up even earlier, hitting the treadmill from 5am. David Cameron, by contrast, was keener to get on with his work. This is him describing his day to me a year or so ago. I used to sort of set an alarm for 5.30, 5.45, and I tried... I'm very quick out of bed in the morning. I'm a, I'm a morning person, and so I used to try and get down to the kitchen and lay out my red boxes and have as long as I possibly could before the children got up and, and, and breakfast started and everything, going through the paperwork for the day, the meetings that were coming up, any urgent things I had to sign or read. Margaret Thatcher, who famously survived on little sleep, was also up early doing her red boxes, according to a former private secretary, Caroline Slowcock. She started work before she started work, so um, before she put her work clothes on, you know, she'd be continuing to work on her boxes from, I think, probably about 6 o'clock in the morning. And then um, at about 7.45 or 8 o'clock, depending um, on other things, she would have her hair done twice a week, um, which is, I suspect, something that Boris Johnson doesn't have. But was there any early exercise regime for the Iron Lady? Uh, In a word, no. Theresa May was keener on exercise, as Paul Howison, her former press secretary, explains. She used to have a gym session on a Saturday that was pretty immovable. Uh, certainly anyone suggesting doing something that interfered with that became quite unpopular quite quickly. If it became clear that you know, there was no alternative but to, to suggest something that meant the gym session got knocked out or was impossible, and there was sometimes one, uh, there were usually two a week, and the, I think the Saturday was a key one, but either way, it would be kind of a genuinely top level, you know, chief of staff, deputy chief of staff person who'd be sent over the top to, to convey that message off. Disturb Theresa May's gym sessions at your peril. The current Prime Minister also needs some time alone. From around 7, 7.30, Boris Johnson is back at his flat in Downing Street, WhatsApping colleagues and going through the papers. The former journalist is still a voracious reader of the news, not least, I'm told, of the Daily Telegraph, his former paper, which used to pay him £250,000 a year for a weekly column. Aides to the current Prime Minister say they're not totally sure what he gets up to in these couple of hours. In Margaret Thatcher's day, it was all hands on deck deciding what she should wear.
She had an assistant called Crawford, Cynthia Crawford, who used to help her with her clothes. Um, they'd sit upstairs and they'd, you know, when they were planning an international trip or speeches or whatever, they would decide together what she would wear for those occasions. So she didn't just wake up in the morning and say, oh, I know, I'll put on my blue suit. Um, that was sort of predetermined and they had names for these suits apparently and I, I, think, I think the names came from when she first wore them so I'll, I'll put on my Ronald Reagan suit or whatever she would say and so that would be sort of um, marked out for her so that she didn't have to think about it but she did do a lot of this sort of back um, preparation of you know thinking long and hard about how she should look and she'd come down you know from the flat and start the formal day which usually and started around sort of sometimes 8.30, but usually around 9. Every Prime Minister needs a coffee, at least if they want to get themselves dressed properly. So back to the first big meeting of the day for Boris Johnson. At that morning meeting, alongside Dan Rosenfield, the Chief of Staff, you'd expect Boris Johnson to be joined by his Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, his new press secretary, Allegra Stratton, director of communications, James Slack, and Nikki DaCosta, the director of legislative affairs. They talked through events overnight and the day ahead, including any pressing issues in the papers or anything coming up in Parliament. The number 10 morning meeting has taken on almost mythical status in recent years. Who was in and who was out of the first face-to-face gathering with the PM was a sign of status and power. Kate Garvey says Tony Blair's meeting would kick off at 8am. Um, he would gather the relevant uh, members of his team to kick off uh, the issues of the day, the week, the month. We had a strategic comms grid that we brought in and Tony always sort of led with the strategy. I always remember back in the day, my fax machine would go on a Sunday night and chug chug would come through often a handwritten two to four page note about what he saw were the long term issues, the short term and the immediate ones and that set the tone so you knew on a Sunday where his head was at and I knew as as the diary secretary how to prioritize the schedule ahead and then those daily meetings would instill that. That morning meeting was then often followed by something called the big guns. So we had something called the big guns and that was I mean we loved an an acronym so TBGB JP and RC. So that was Tony Gordon, Robin Cook, John Prescott. And and that was the big guns meeting. That started in opposition, but we continued that through. Theresa May's morning meeting was rarely a jolly affair, not least because it started with a review of her media coverage. Paul Harrison again. So the first meeting of the day for for her was, was always the same. It was always 8.30. And the, the now serving uh, Director of Communications, James Slack, or me, would uh, have the joy of presenting that day's kind of headlines and, and, and the, the media picture we were dealing with that day. And that was the first thing at that meeting. So it's not necessarily always the, the way that you'd want your day to start, because the stuff that you had to deal with was usually the most disobliging. And therefore, that was the stuff that, uh, that we spent our time talking about. David Cameron's 8.30 meeting was a thing of legend. More and more people would squeeze in, knowing it was good for their reputation to be seen to be there, until a cull would be made to restrict it to only his closest aides and advisers, including George Osborne, Michael Gove, and his Director of Communications, Craig Oliver. Here's David Cameron again. And then it was, you know, National Security Council meetings, Cabinet meetings. We worked out, I think, a quarter of a Prime Minister's time is on 
diplomatic meetings, other heads of state and prime ministers, foreign travel, um, visiting, uh, and, and other sort of foreign issues. While David Cameron and many of his predecessors face this melange of daily issues, there's just one which dominates Boris Johnson's day, coronavirus. The morning meeting done, the next big entry in his diary is what is known in number 10 as Dashboard, where he's updated on the latest live COVID data, including cases, hospitalisations, deaths, and more recently, the pace of vaccinations. As well as the publicly available figures published on gov.uk, the government also buys in data from external sources to track things like travel movements, shopping habits and public opinion. These meetings are often attended in person or virtually by Matt Hancock, the Health Secretary, Chris Whitty, the Chief Medical Officer, and Sir Patrick Vallance, the Chief Scientific Advisor. Lasting around half an hour, it quickly morphs into a debate about what more steps or restrictions might be needed in the hours and days ahead. What then follows in the diary can be a random mix of national security and parochial politics, calls to world leaders and Tory backbench troublemakers and just about everyone in between. Here's David Cameron. I think the bit of the job that is is sort of, well, it's all challenging, but one of the challenges is it is so multifaceted that you go from one minute you're making a serious statement in the House of Commons, the next minute you've got to make a jokey speech at a charity lunch, the next minute you're meeting the widow of someone who was served in Afghanistan, then you're having a vital meeting about some issue that's suddenly come up, then you've got a call with Vladimir Putin about what's happening in Syria, and you've got to be on top of your game for all of them. There's never a meeting you're in which you're not chairing, uh, and that's what, um, you know, you can't sort of sit back... You can't think on this is a quiet meeting, so I can, put, no, I can, I can off, duck out this You're always way. on, and you have to keep changing from all of those aspects and try to do all of them well. Um, and that's one of the one of the one of the big big challenges. No matter what power you think the prime minister has, the one thing they actually have very little control over is how they spend their day. As Theresa May's former press secretary Paul Harrison explains. And I remember once a slightly strange moment of just frankness and clarity. The PM told me that she had been told by somebody that some psychologist somewhere had done some research and decided that one of the most stressful experiences it is possible to have in your professional life is not being in control of your own diary. And there was this point where, you know, PM sort of said that while looking through her diary, raised her eyebrows in, you know, quite a sustained manner. And then and then we moved on. Control over the diary is vital. Who gets to see the Prime Minister and who doesn't? is a sometimes complex equation. Kate Garvey had a desk right outside Tony Blair's office to act as his gatekeeper. There were a lot of 30-minute meetings. That was our rule. 30-minute meetings, briefings needed to be two pages or less. He could consume a brief very quickly. So you could pack them in, and that's what he liked to do. So it's, And they were short, sharp meetings. And, and my job was to make sure they genuinely didn't overrun. I was I was firm but fair, I would say, and I, I, I was constantly putting my head round at the 30-minute mark, and I had to read him. I had to read, did he really want me to wrap this up? Was he sort of being polite and saying, I need more time? So I had, to, I had to take some decisions like that. But yeah, I was constantly going in and keeping the show on the road. So we had a few rules, and one of them centered around the code that we introduced for managing invitations. Thousands would come, mainly letters back in the day, but emails, uh, phone requests, etc. And how do we manage that? 
So we got into a system of how Tony would communicate how he felt about it. And so it started with TMPI, try and pop in. And I soon realized that meant that was never going to happen. So I always felt bad if I said to someone, it's going to try and pop into this reception. That, that was unlikely. Then there was FO, fob off. And then, then it got a little worse. FOFI, F-O-F-E, fob off forever. Um, and then the final one was an SO, a sackable offense. If this person <laughs> were to cross the threshold, this was not good for me. So I knew my orders and I, I managed accordingly, always trying to be nice about it. The risk is that prime ministers become detached and remote, not just from the voters, but from their colleagues too, according to Caroline Slowcock, who worked for Margaret Thatcher. Her diaries, like many senior people, were just completely chock-a-block. So, you know, once the diary had been set, and they'd be set weeks in advance, um, there's not much space to, to put anything in. You know, it's one of the reasons why prime ministers actually become quite inaccessible, but it's just, it just is a fact of life uh, that they can't, they can't be as flexible as they would have been in a sort of different life. Preparing for Prime Minister's questions can take hours out of the diary. For the likes of Margaret Thatcher and John Major, it was a twice-weekly affair on Tuesdays and Thursdays, meaning it dominated most of the week. Tony Blair merged the two 15-minute sessions into a single half-hour on Wednesdays, as well as prepping for the questions in the Commons, which can take up most of the morning. Afternoons could be absorbed with a good opportunity to catch up with MPs afterwards in the tea room. Those that struggled with such bonhomie, including Gordon Brown and Theresa May, often had trouble in their ranks as a result. And then to lunch. You might be running a country with as little time for the finer things in life, and that includes food. There is now a small canteen in Number 10, but even then lunch can be an unimpressive affair. Caroline Slowcock again. When she was doing briefing for Prime Minister's Questions, she used to have a bowl of soup and a sandwich. So there was somebody who came in who was paid for by number 10 to provide that sort of working lunch. But otherwise, uh, it wasn't provided um, for her and she had to do it herself. And she used to get her um, constituency secretary, Joy, and Crawfee, who you know, was her sort of, sort of right-hand woman, to go and get some stuff for her. So she had to think about what she wanted, but you know, there, there was Marks and Sparks uh, things in the freezer that could be just heated up. Kate Garvey recalls the excitement of when a Starbucks opened in Westminster, raising the standard of takeouts. Tony saw food as fuel during the day. It was not a big focus, but obviously he did want to remain healthy and certainly Cherie thought about that. So, I mean, it was lovely. I remember little Leo used to come down with a, with a basket, one of those toy baskets of fruit that they would, they would bring in from Sainsbury's and then bring down and, and uh, fill up the bowl. And that was, that was his sort of main healthy way of getting through the day. For Theresa May, a diabetic, eating the right thing at the right time was a serious business. You know, she'd have to be quite careful about injecting insulin and, and matching that to what she was eating. And so that was actually something that we would even have to plan on trips to make sure that before a meal or, or something that the PM had somewhere that she could... Uh, inject herself with insulin if she needed that and sometimes that would be sort of five times a day um, during a really demanding day so uh, so yeah it was sort of a particular feature of that for her and even up to the extent that her the armoured car the, the the jag that she'd she'd be taken around in 
that had a little store of things like nuts and jelly babies just in case to help balance her blood sugar. As for Boris Johnson, he's talked a lot about trying to eat more healthily. I've always wanted to lose weight for ages and ages, and I, like I think many people, I struggle with my weight go up and, and down. But since I, I recovered from coronavirus, I've been steadily building up my fitness. That was Boris Johnson talking last year. He's lost more than a stone since being hospitalised with coronavirus and is still trying to eat better, though aides say he does not have time carved out for lunch. One thing that he does try to make time for, though, I'm told, is an afternoon power nap. Not every day, but occasionally the door of the Prime Minister's study is shut and staff know that he's not to be disturbed. It's a habit that apparently dates back to his days as Mayor of London. One Downing Street insider who knows the PM well told me these are tough jobs that do take a lot of time in stress. It would not be entirely uncommon in the diary for him to shut the door and have a kit for half an hour or so. A power executive business nap to get him ready for the rest of the day. He's in good company, and not just his hero Winston Churchill. Leonardo da Vinci, Bill Clinton, John F. Kennedy and Salvador Dali were all said to be keen power nappers. A Downing Street spokesman denied that Boris Johnson took afternoon naps, insisting his day is literally full of meetings. He's hard at work and has a very full and busy schedule. The revelation of the occasional power nap is likely to raise eyebrows. There aren't many jobs these days which allow 40 winks after lunch. But as Paul Harrison explains, being Prime Minister is a uniquely demanding role. A strange and unpopular opinion, but I sort of am inclined to believe that there's no such thing as a lazy PM. And actually that, you know, everybody's day is packed and maybe different people have different preferences and, and some people are more stacanobite than others. But I've always thought that the demands the role places on you, you know, are, they are actually so huge and so uh, so all-encompassing that it's sort of impossible. The system prevents you from being lazy. You know, the, the red box follows you around like a spectre. It's always stuff full of work. Uh, the decisions are urgent and therefore unavoidable. And so people do it in different ways. But I just don't think you can climb that far to the top of the tree being a, a, a sort of a work shy person. Being able to switch off from the job, even for a few minutes, might be no bad thing. While David Cameron was accused of chillaxing, others might think that preferable to Gordon Brown's round-the-clock obsessiveness, which even friends say drove him a bit crazy. Boris Johnson, in particular, is a bookworm. Often in dull meetings, he can be found thumbing a book in the corner. In number 10, there are piles of books everywhere. One notable tome which has caught his eye recently is the complete works of Plato. Rather than the great conundrums of philosophy, Theresa May preferred number puzzles. One of the things that the PM often used to do just by way of relaxation, although it didn't look that relaxing because she used to do it furiously quickly, was Sudoku. Uh, the Sudoku on the back of the Times actually was uh, on the back of the Times too was her preferred diversion at some points during the day. And I remember once there was a point where we were flying somewhere for some trip. We tried to work out whether there was a copy of the Times on the plane so that the PM could do Sudoku. And I seem to remember the uh, the travelling Times journalist didn't have one. We didn't have one. Uh, and so someone's app was pressed into service so that the PM could do the Sudoku. But what I didn't realise is that the app has effectively a countdown timer, which meant she's quite a competitive person. meant the whole thing went into overdrive as, you know, uh, not relaxing at all as the PM competed against herself to get the Fiendish Sudoku done in the absolute quickest possible time. So the afternoon stretches ahead with more meetings and more decisions to take. In Boris Johnson's case, more often than not, this means a cabinet briefing 
and a press conference setting out his latest efforts to get the pandemic under control. It means it could be late before he gets to retreat to the flat upstairs and his fiancée, Carrie Simons, and baby's son, Wilf, with two red boxes of paperwork to complete. While aides to Boris Johnson say the work broadly gets done, those famous red boxes are crucial to the functioning of government, as Paul Harrison explains. It's sort of the box, weirdly, in you know a, a pretty advanced Western democracy that is a completely paper-based thing. That's, that's a lot of how big decisions that affect all of our lives are made still. Tony Blair was always keen for some family time, but then to get some sleep. Late nights were not his thing. He valued his sleep, and I would say was in bed by 10 most of the time, if he could be. Margaret Thatcher, by contrast, was happy to work late into the night. Caroline Slocop. We'd be working on speeches with her, and sometimes that would carry over um, into the evening. And we'd work in the study with her. You know, she'd have some whiskey, glass of whiskey or two, perhaps. And um, then she'd say, look, you know, come up to the flat and uh, we'll carry on working over dinner. And, you know, very, very sort of basic um, flat in those days. You know, she'd serve something up and uh, we'd just carry on working. And then after that, she would get the sort of three to five boxes. I mean, classically, we would produce maybe in the working week, maybe three boxes of papers. And, you know, they would be coming across the evening. So, you know, she'd get her first box and take it upstairs or we'd take it upstairs. She'd work on it. But another box might, you know, come at sort of 10 o'clock at night. There were limits, though, even to Margaret Thatcher's stamina. And, you know, she, she had this habit of uh, underlining the documents uh, so that we knew that she'd read them, I think. But I think it was also a sort of, you know, a sort of um, slightly OCD characteristic. Um, but you could see when the, the papers came out of the boxes that sometimes she'd fall asleep because the lines would fall off the page. Wake up, Maggie, I think I got something to say you. Turns out having a nap might not be so bad after all. It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a dog It's been a hard day's night I should be sleeping like a log But when I get home to you I find the things that you do Will make me feel Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB online via Smart Speaker or on the Times Radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.